Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. Friday, good morning, 1850-715-996. The number to call, the text to WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. The email, opinion at 96fm.ie. Reported in the Irish Times this morning that very soon, well, at least it's what they want, you could have people coming into Ireland without this 72-hour-old PCR test being told they have to quarantine. Dear Lord Almighty, has it taken nearly a year since we first began speaking about COVID-19 on this programme on this day last year? Has it taken nearly a year for them to come to that very sensible decision because without that we're we're never going to get where we where we need to be this mandate we're going to have to start putting people into hotels as soon as they get off a plane unless they can absolutely demonstrate to us that they pose no threat to us and if the authorities in australia can put the biggest um, tennis stars in the world into quarantine and say tough lads you're staying there the same rules apply to you as apply to the rest of us. I don't care if you're Novak Djokovic or Noel Murphy. You're staying in that hotel. We need to start doing that to people. We need to start doing it very, very quickly. And people need to be perfectly okay with it. We'll get to that later on. 1857 This Friday, we're going to do something special. Remember, Graham Clifford was on with me yesterday. And Graham was talking about the, the National Day of Thank You, which he wants to do at the end of February. But we thought we'd start the ball rolling with him today and encourage you to get involved in it. Now, we're not saying that if you do it here today with us, then you don't have to do it for Graham. But just to get the idea rolling, get the idea fermenting in your head over the next few weeks. We're going to do it here today. Uh, and I'll explain why, or sorry, how, in a wee while. Uh, by the way, the roads are not great. They're not great at all uh, this Friday morning. I'm still, this is the last morning of my wonderful commute down the stairs and through the kitchen. I'm back to normal on Monday, back into Studio One. But if you are out on the roads this morning, could you please take a little bit of extra care? Some of the roads out there this morning are very, very bad. We've reports of a number of collisions around the city and county. If you have seen anything or if you've come across any patch of road that you think our listeners should know about that is particularly dodgy, you know how to get onto us. Particularly a text or WhatsApp, probably the best for that. 083 396 um, When safe to do so. But first, to education. 
and we've talked all week about the special needs sector about whether or not the schools can go back on the 1st of February which is now looking increasingly unlikely we've talked about the early education providers with them yesterday we had them on the programme and the leaving certs didn't get a look in uh, this week there was more or less last week's issue but Cahill uh, contacted the show uh, about your son Connor I think Cahill who is studying really hard working really hard but even after a few weeks working at home on Zoom and on his laptop is getting to him. Good morning. Yes, good morning, PJ. Yeah, it's uh, funny, just you mentioned there two words in your first piece, sensible decision. Uh, I think a sensible decision should be taken now with regards to the leaving cert. You know, they talk about it being traditional. There's absolutely nothing traditional about this leaving cert. You know, my son is, my son Connor is usually very happy and outgoing, of course, no outgoing at the present circumstances. But just 15 minutes ago, he just did his usual, go to the kitchen. I'm looking to the window now and over in the office and he's got his head stuck in the screen and that will be him for the rest of the day, more or less, uh, not knowing what's ahead of him. Um, it's really, really difficult, not only for him, but also for the other 60,000 Leaving Cert students that are out there and the parents. Uh, it's become very evident, you know, that the, ninth, the, the 1920 Leaving Certificate students, they had their curriculum completed uh, I think they've got to a level where they've done their mocks. And then, of course, they're in the revision stage to do the leaving certificates. Unfortunately, the 2021 students for leaving certificates at this stage have more or less missed out four months and they still don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. So is he doing like his, his full day according to the regular hours he would do in school? Yeah, he is, PJ. Yeah. And he will go out uh, this morning. I think it was just uh, the sort of class check-in. Uh, he will do his class via the computer. Uh, he'll take notes. Uh, the course of teachers are doing their utmost to try and assist the students. But it's screen time. You know, we talk about children coming away from computers and trying to get out and about. Uh, he's not even getting that. He will do his day. He will take his breaks. He'll come for a two-minute walk around the garden. He'll go back in onto the screen again. He'll finish. He'll have his lunch. He'll finish his day. He'll do his assignments. And then he starts studying. So we see him in here at half past eight in the evening. And he's absolutely wrecked. And for a 17-and-a-half-year-old... He says, I'm tired of going to bed at nine o'clock. That's not our Connor. He's really putting in the work fair plate. What is it he wants to do after school? So he's, we only filled in the CAO forms actually two nights ago, or three nights ago, we filled them in. Um, he's looking at engineering. He's looking at uh, pharmaceutical. Uh, he's still sort of up in the air. Of course, he can't get the guidance that he wants, that he would have had in school. And um, so he's just he just picks some subjects between UCC and CIT. So he's looking down the engineering route or the pharmaceutical route. All of which are high points exactly. courses yeah. and a lot of pressure to get into them. He He's putting the work in yeah. under very difficult situations, isn't he? Yeah, he is indeed, PJ. And, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate to see such a, a young fella like that trying to do and maintain his study, but not knowing where he's going. It's like going down a path where there's no end. You know, it's like there's a brick wall at the end, but he doesn't know where that is. Now, he's in touch with all his buddies on WhatsApp and all the other platforms yeah, yeah. that they use. How are they feeling? Are they in the same boat? They're exactly in the same boat. You know, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> sometimes rumours go around and, of course, they're on the WhatsApp groups, but none of them know what they want to do. It's, it's quite strange. You know, when I ask him what do a lot of his friends want to do, an awful lot of them want to do psychology. Uh, which is very apt to this situation we're in at the moment. 
Um, but they're all of the same same elk. They don't know what's happening. You know, they don't know whether they should continue studying. They don't know whether they should continue putting the hours in. They don't know if the mocks are coming up. They just don't know where they're going. They're lost. Yeah, they're unable to. They're unable to plan. The government, every time you hear them, seem determined to push ahead uh, with what they call a traditional leaving search. Now they were pushing ahead with it until very late in the day last year. And they're under pressure to make some kind of a decision this year. They can't really call it traditional in these strange times, can they? No, it's, it's absolutely not traditional. There's, there's nothing traditional about this leaving search. I think they're actually, if anything, they're at an advantage right now, PJ, because they have the time. They have the time to make it, make a, a decision now. So children and the kids, the Leaving Certificate students, can come away from this stress. We talk about, you know, this pandemic having mental health issues on kids and stress. Well, you know, it's been alleviated by the condition of not knowing where they're going at the moment. So if they make the call now, it's good. Like yesterday, we watched the Doyle, and my son actually watched the Doyle as well. I recorded it for him. And it was an absolute debacle watching what was going on there. It was very, very toxic. And again, the same rhetoric was coming around saying that the education, it's safe for the kids to go into. It was safe between September and December. Well, that was September and December. This is now. We're in a completely different situation now. So they need to, they need to make the call now so people can see and make decisions on what they're going to do going forward. Mm. I, I remember, look, it's a long time since my leaving cert. I don't know how long it is since yours. But both of us, just as two dads, we will remember what it was like trying to plan for our leaving cert and trying to put some kind of a timetable together at the end of January for how we were going to work our way through the, the months between then and June. But you can't in, in, in Connor's position, can you? No, we, no, certainly can't, PJ. I did my leaving cert back in 1990, and as you said, we could plan. Unfortunately, we cannot plan because it doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after or next week or next month. You know, we, all he can do is just do the same thing over and over. It's like Groundhog Day, and it's getting to him stress-wise. And I can see mentally-wise, it is getting to him. And, of course, the, there's the parents as well, because the parents want to do the best for their children, and they can't either. Yeah, who needs to step up here? Well, the government, you know, they need to step up. Again, go back to what you said there at the very start of, of your uh, show, a sensible decision. A sensible decision needs to be made now. You know, I listen to some of the politicians. Um, I, I know there's one down in, I think there's Mick Barry in Cork. He, he's very, very good. And he's listening. You know, the government mm. are listening. But he is listening. And various other politicians are listening. But the people that make the decisions are not listening to either the kids or to the parents. Now, you could argue that Mick Barry comes from a place of opposition where you can say what you want. You don't actually have to do it. So doing it is a lot harder than saying it, I suppose. Yeah, of course. But at least, you know, he makes he makes the right. And of course, I'm not anyway in a political person. I don't actually look after. I just maintain and look at things from a positive perspective. You know, the person that has to make the decision is the Minister for Education. You know, and again, that decision is just being tiptoed around. And I know, as you've mentioned, it's all been SNA for the last week, which rightly so, because those kids need to get back to school. But of course, the leaving certificate students that have a future ahead of them that are going to be at the forefront of the country getting a recovery in years to come. They need to know where to go. So the government, the Minister for Education and the government need to make that call ASAP for these people. All right, Carl, I'll leave it there. Wish him well for us anyway. I will do, PJ.
Take care. That's Cahal Coley, a Cody, uh, father of Connor, who right now is out in their little office in the back, studying, doing his full day, his full time, all in front of screens, getting tired already. And Cahal is saying, look, for the sake of my son and the sake of his friends and the sake of his classmates, make a bloody decision. Doesn't matter what it is, just make a decision. How much more time are we going to have to spend asking our government to make a flipping decision? There is a serious outbreak of COVID-19 at a traveller's halting site in Cork. Anything up to 60 cases at the Spring Lane halting site in Ballyvalan. That's the estimate. There's no actual number, but the the examiner, uh, which has a story about it this morning, and any of the estimates coming in to us from our own sources are saying as many as 60 cases on that uh, one halting site. Now, the council is looking for emergency provision of accommodation to allow them to isolate, to allow those members of the travelling community to isolate and bring the outbreak under control. Oliver Moran is the chair of the city's Traveller Accommodation Committee and a Green Party councillor. Oliver, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you keeping? Um, Good. That's a serious outbreak up there. It it is, and and I suppose, look, there's a mix of, of... Rumour among the community, there's obviously people are concerned uh, about what is happening, as we all are, about, about COVID-19. And I, I suppose just to say, broadly speaking, what you described is is, is accurate, as I understand it. Um, but I, I think the, the important thing here for, for people here is, look, I, I remember I was, I was on your programme almost a year ago now. Uh, about an outbreak in, in a, a, a school close to where I'm living. And I said to you then, look, COVID-19 is almost going to become normal in time. And, and, and that's what it is, that there's, there's outbreaks of COVID-19 in lots of different settings, uh, in, in schools, in workplaces, in care homes, in, in traveller accommodation. It, it's, it is, unfortunately, everywhere, and, and we, we have to learn to, to manage it better than we have been. Right. Okay. So how do you manage one on a traveller halting site? Have we figured uh, out how to do that? Well, we, we we can close a school, we can close a workplace, we can't close a halting site. No, and 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 these like this is I, this is like like with a care home. This is where people are living. Um, so there there's a number of things which are, are very practical, which has to happen. One, we we have to make sure that people continue to get the essential services that that they need, and that includes food. I mean, when, when you cannot leave your, your home because you're, you are self-isolating um, and when other people around you can't uh, leave their homes because similarly they're self-isolating uh, then there has to be provision of, of essential services and, 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 and essentials even such as food uh, to keep you going for, for that period and that has happened in other examples too um, like from the very beginning uh, elderly people are, uh, around the city uh, this, the city council has been providing these kind of wraparound services and, uh, and these direct to home services for people to make sure that, that people can um, can get through this crisis um, and that it, it, look it, it is incredibly challenging yes uh, but with the, the efforts that are going in by the HSE, by the City Council and by voluntary organisations who I, I specifically want to call out uh, the Cork Traveller Women's Association and uh, the Traveller Visibility Group on the work mm. they've been doing um, in helping the residents kind of get through this, this crisis. So what kind of things are the Council doing, your chair of the committee? So w- w- right from the very beginning of the pandemic we, we had been planning for what would happen um, and I, 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 at the back of our minds throughout 
uh, was that you know it, it really wasn't a matter of if it was when, um, and a, a lot of the planning which we had been doing was for the outbreak of individual cases. So that there had been throughout the year um, sus- individual suspected cases. But sure, Oliver, these were if that's to, what to you were planning for. Yeah. You weren't planning well because we all know that there's hardly any such a thing as an individual case and that once once one case gets into some place like Spring Lane because of the close nature of how yeah. people live in, in halting sites, you were never going to be dealing with individual cases. You were always going to deal with an outbreak. Well, we were throughout the year. There was individual cases. People were self-isolated and... and um, uh, there was certainly suspected cases where, where people self-isolated and, and nothing, nothing came off them. Um, now, with a larger outbreak like this, yes, it, it absolutely is challenging. It, it, it's a different scenario. Um, and in, in that case, people are being offered, as you said, uh, emergency accommodation. The, the city where has, is that accommodation? Is it in so, council, council so the, stock? The, the 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 city does have emergency accommodation for for various reasons, um, and and it is being used throughout the pandemic for for people who for whatever reason there's there's lots of of examples um, where people. How much of it do you have? To, I don't have the exact numbers. Uh, it, it it it's it's certainly not full up yet. Um, a lot of like a, a lot of the, the residents in in. in Are you in, talking about in, hotels? In, in, uh, no, specifically guest houses, B and Bs. Specifically, uh, council's own emergency accommodation. Um, council's post- all your own housing stock. Uh, yeah, emergency accommodation is it, 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 it's different from the kind of regular housing stock. But in, in any case, look, people are. No, hang on, I just want to develop it a little bit, Oliver, because yeah. I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about. Are you talking about flats? Are you talking about houses? Are you talking about about apartments? What? Well, it, 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 in, in a lot of cases, in, in, in some respect, it, it, it isn't very relevant because the... You know, but I think rest, people would rest, like to know what it is what, well, when you talk about having emergency accommodation and what is it? Well, the reason I'm saying it, it, it's not entirely relevant is because residents, have, have, as they're perfectly entitled to, have chosen to self-isolate in their own homes. Uh, so the, the, the residents... Have decided to well, mainly re- decided to to remain uh, on on in their own homes and would be definitely sleeping there. And that's so staying on the what, site. What, yeah, and that's that's why the the, the HSE and voluntary organisations are supporting them in that. Right, right. Councillor Ken O'Flynn came up with an idea um, that there is empty, if you like, billets, military accommodation in Collins's barracks that is no longer being used by the army. Like, could, could that be used as an, isol- an isolation base for people who, who don't have the, the facility to isolate themselves rather than using city council stock? Because, and I'm just thinking of what comes to mind, we had a story on the programme yesterday or the day before about a man sleeping in a bin. So, yeah. you know, there's emerg- lots of people need emergency housing stock. If you've got quite a number of people in one place, could you not use, like Kenneth Flynn suggests, use unused military accommodation? And uh, uh, like early, earlier in the pandemic, for sure, I, I remember uh, there was hotel stocks being being, being talked about being used. Um, now, as this has panned out, that that hasn't come to case. Look, as as with all plans, planning is is absolutely essential. But when it comes to it, your 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 plans have to change. Um, so. Hotel stocks were considered, uh, but 
I, I, like I said, it's like I, I, I personally, I, I don't unless the people themselves are, are willing to to move in into into different locations. I, I, I don't really know how that will pan out in in reality. If, so, if somebody wants to self isolate in their own home, then that's that's where they're choosing to self isolate. And the, the important thing for everybody, and look, it, the, the message for everybody is to stay at home. And it is to it is to restrict your social interaction and restrict yeah. your movements. So, you know, talking about, about moving people to to some to some central location, um, I, I I think look the message here for everybody is stay at home. Like I was looking at the numbers. So what, today, you're, you're, and, and there's, Oliver? There's, there's with respect, you seem very unclear, Oliver. With due respect, on what exactly is happening to the people presently, either uh, confirmed with or suspected as having, or close contacts of cases on the whole What exactly well, it's, is it's, the plan? It's, it's the same, it's the same. It, broadly speaking, it's the same plan as, as, as everybody else. It, it, it is to restrict your movements, to self-isolate for, for the period of time that's, that's you, you But we've you agreed that the conditions in pertaining on a place like Spring Lane, they don't allow for that. They certainly make it very difficult, yes. I, uh, that's beyond question. Uh, but at the so same when it time, can't be done, what is the council doing? What the, what the council is doing is, is is allowing people to to stay at at their own home, to self isolate within their own home, and provide them with the essential services. Then that, but when that they, they can't, to, to but when they can't, but like what what if you've got a family of six people living in one caravan? They can't self isolate. But in in any case, you are you like you are. It is it is a household unit that has to that has to self isolate. So it, it, it in all cases, whether it's you, me, whether it's well, hold on, the rest of us are told to go into your own room and stay there. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that in a caravan. Really. No, you, you can't. And and look, this is why if if, if people want, uh, you know, there there are emergency accommodations being offered to people. And if right. if if somebody wants to take that up, then they they can take that up. But at the same time, if if somebody chooses to, that they want to self isolate in their own home as best as they can, that is what they're choosing to do. Right. Okay. Just move on to something else, there, yeah. Oliver. Briefly, um, I see a story in the Examiner this morning about Bishop Lucy Park, and that in the wake of the findings of the Mother and Baby Home Commission and what the the report that we are still trying to sift our way through that the Green Party wants the name of Bishop Lucy Park to be changed. So, uh, earlier in the week, and, and it, it was, as you said, in the wake of the Mother of Baby Homes report, uh, we wrote to Lord Mayor with uh, a series of, of discussion items um, which we, we think that the City Council need, needs to needs to reflect upon uh, in, in light of the Mother of Baby Homes report. So, the top of those is what supports the City Council can give to survivors. Um, when the report came out, for example, one of the things which, which I, I contacted the city council about was ensuring that um, survivors would have access to a, a paper copy of the report immediately. Um, now, since then, the, the department have provided that. But uh, when the libraries do re- reopen, for example, there will be a copy of a paper copy of the report for access. The council also has you know, access to, to archives, um, you know, heritage officers, and, and when I'm contacted by survivors of mother and baby homes. These are many of the, the, the issues that they, they want uh, support on is about you know their own identity and making sure that their, their, their story gets told. Uh, so 
and I'm sure there are other you know functional assistance that the, that the city council can give to survivors. So that, that would be top of the agenda for for what I would want the city council to look at. The the yeah. other thing is, like Cork City Council, not strictly by name, but but is referenced throughout the report that you know for much of the period where the report talks about uh, the local health authority, that actually is Cork City yeah. Council. Um, Come back so, to the question I asked you though, Bishop uh, Lucy so Park, should the name be changed? So the, if I can just, just finish with this item, like other local authorities have made apologies. So Kilkenny uh, County Council have made an apology for, for their involvement uh, in, in uh, institutions in, in, in Kilkenny. Galway County Council uh, is expected to do the same on Monday. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that, that will be one thing. Now, next after that is you know, there, there are places in our city that are named after uh, people who are named in the report, and one of those is Bishop Lucy Park. Uh, Bishop Lucy is, is, is named several times in the report. Uh, for example, saying uh, that it was his belief that the um, uh, women who who, came, who presented at the homes for a second time should be treated more uh, strictly, should be kept there for at least twelve months, and should be separated from from other women. Um, in 1971, the congregation who were running Bessborough. Uh, sought to actually close the best per mother and baby home. Yeah, no, no, just um, without, without, without re, re, reheating, requoting the report, and many people still trying to go through it, and many people yeah. very upset by its contents. But I, I just want a straight question, Oliver. Do you think that the name, or the straight answer, do you think that the name of Bishop Lucy Park should be changed? We're investing over a million euro to redevelop Bishop Lucy Park. It, you know, very closely after this report has come out, um, and. In, in that context, I, I think we do have to look again at the names of places in the city. Okay. And Bishop Lucy Park is a, is a, a very clear one. I, I'm, I, I want uh, on this, I, I would like an all of council approach, looking at all of the issues involved in this. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, that's I'm not, not a yes or a no. Do you it, think it, personally it should be changed? Me personally, I, me very personally, I, I, I think. <laughs> I, I it's think yes or no, Oliver. You probably, do or you don't. Probably yes, uh, but I would prefer to have a discussion with all of council okay. on this. Uh, but right. Me personally, I would I'd say probably yes, but I, I think the, the number one people we have to consult on is actually the survivors oh, yeah. themselves. Oh yeah, and we can so, do that, and if any survivor has is of that view that they can certainly call us and yeah, tell us. Oliver, I'll leave it there, know, for, I'll leave it there right, for now. If I, if I can just say, to, rather than me or any other member of council saying, I, I think Bishop Lucy Park should be changed, or I, I think the council should apologise, I think, what, or I think this service should be provided, I, I think, first and foremost, uh, we should look at the issues that, that the report brings up for Cork City Council, engage okay. with survivors groups, and then ask them what we should do. All right. Okay, leave it there for now. Thanks very much. That's Oliver Moran. He's the chair of the uh, City Traveller Accommodation Committee and member of the Green Party. Uh, Paul says he won't tell you they've houses ready for people to move into so they don't have to allocate them. Councillor Moran's not giving any straight answers of any benefit to traveller or settled person this morning. There's people dying in the CUH because of mismanagement and lack of planning for situations like this. And sadly, it looks like that number will now be added to by members of the travelling community. This could all have been prevented by forward planning education and enforcement. 1850-715-996. What Ken O'Flynn wanted was that anybody confirmed as a COVID-19 case on a halting light, light, site like Spring Lane, given the difficulty of, a, of self-isolating in a place like that, 
the nature of the place being very, very hard, if not impossible, to self-isolate. What Councillor O'Flynn was saying is that there are empty army billets, if you want to use that term, around Collins's barracks, not being used because obviously the uh, place has been scaled down now. So if someone tests positive in Spring Lane, then you shift them into an army billet for two weeks to self-isolate. And they're small billets and they're small places and they're off-site. It sounds like a logical solution to me. And then what's this emergency stock that he's talking about that they have? Like there was a poor guy sleeping in a skip the other night downtown. Do you know, there's a guy currently kipping in the foyer of the old Debenhams. Like, where's the emergency accommodation for them? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now, there's a, a letter written by Chief Medical Officer Tony Holohan to the government, uh, written on the 14th of uh, January. It's quoted in the newspapers today and yesterday, in which he warns that a thousand people could have died of COVID-19 by the end of January. So far, we know, just on last evening's figures, 500 misfortunes have lost their lives connected to COVID-19 since the start of January. Also, uh, Mr. Holohan's or Dr. Holohan said in that letter that Neffet is very, very concerned still about international travel, particularly from places like Brazil and South Africa and the UK, where there are all new variants now of COVID-19, very, very highly infectious variants, and people are particularly worried about the Brazilian one for for a number of reasons. 1,600 people flew into Ireland uh, from Brazil uh, between December the 1st and January 11th. 1,400 came in from South Africa. 190,000 in total came into the country in in that period of time. Did they quarantine? Did they even isolate? Did they restrict their movements? Did they what? Did they what? Neffet says we need to get tougher now than just the PCP test within... 72 hours. The Irish Times reporting this morning that it might happen. Mandatory quarantine might happen, even though there was quite an unsavoury exchange of views yesterday about it. It got very ridiculous. The Cork numbers of COVID-19 cases up to today, the 14-day figure up to today for Cork City and County is 4,976, which would give us 995 uh, per uh, 10,000 population or per 100,000 population, rather. Last week on the 15th, that number was 8,237. And two weeks ago, on the 8th of January, it was 6,205. So we're kind of on the crest here. We seem to be having peaked and are starting to go down in Cork. To get back to the levels we were at uh, pre-December, though, we'd need to be very tough on ourselves for several weeks to come. Dr. Tomás Ryan's been on the show many times. Uh, he's from Trinity College in Dublin. Dr. Ryan, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? 
Good, good to speak to you again. Um, I'm just looking at the Cork figures there, and I did some basic leaving certs and first-year UCC maths and modelling sums on it uh, over the last few hours as I was preparing to talk to you. It would take us until Easter to get down to the levels we were at at the start of December, and it would take us until well into late May to get anywhere near the way we had it practically licked last summer. Should we now be seriously considering staying in this hard lockdown until we can get the national figures down to 50 a day or or 10 a day even? The view of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group and, and my own personal view is that we need to get down to 10 cases a day because when we get or less, you know, ideally zero, but certainly 10 cases a day because that's where we can control it. And that means opening up. That means getting to level one restrictions or better potentially with wet pubs open. It means, it means living again. It means getting our life back and not uh, working in the fear of, of, of future lockdown. So a strategy to get to level one and stay to level one, that's what we're advocating for. Now, when you say, will it that take until April, May? Um, it depends. I mean, the, the wrong question that has been put to people for too long is, you know, how long, when can we get out of restrictions, how long of a lockdown we want. And when you say we're going to have a six-week lockdown or an eight-week lockdown, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is getting down to the destination of cases. Um, but that doesn't mean it necessarily takes until May. It takes until, That would take until April, May if it was the speed of decline of the second lockdown. So remember, the second lockdown was not as effective as the first, um, mm. and that's because of how we did it. Um, and so if you have a weaker lockdown, it takes longer. If you want it to go faster, we can do it faster. We can do it much faster if we have a much harder lockdown. Uh, and for that to happen, the first thing you need is government leadership. Uh, it's not about the specific measures. People get annoyed when we, we nickel and dime all these different measures. You need the Taoiseach to come out to give a major speech with a clear strategy that says we are going to get to 10 cases a day and we're going to keep it there. The reward is you're going to have a normal life mostly. You're going to have wet pubs open, maybe socially distanced, or if we get to zero cases, maybe in Munster and Connacht. I see no reason why we couldn't get to zero cases in Munster and Connacht. Uh, then you can have everything open normally. Could we go, um, and in could Australia, we go to matches? Could we have mass. concerts? Yes, I mean, that's what's happening in Australia and New Zealand right now. Concerts, yeah. rugby games, full capacity, no face mask. That's what level zero is. But level one is the runner-up prize. Um, and I think that level zero should be attainable on at least a province-by-province province basis. Um, or You've mentioned that too many problem. people are still moving around. Now, anecdotally, and I've been working from home for the last few weeks, so I've not been out uh, at all um, until at least the last day or two, the, the streets are nothing like, nothing like as quiet as they were in last March and April. Exactly. You say there were still too many people moving around. Exactly. No, there's too many people moving around. We can look at this from the traffic data, um, that we don't look like we were looking in the, in the first lockdown. There's still too much movement. Uh, there's also far too much international travel. In the first lockdown, we saw what real international travel was essential. We were getting about 5,000 
passengers a week coming into Ireland. Now we're getting about 35,000 passengers a week coming into Ireland. Now that is not essential international travel. We need international travel quarantine. And I've stated that in the strongest possible way. Um, last July, uh, PJ, there was one week where we imported at least 35 COVID cases that we know about. And remember how low our cases were last summer. That was destroyed by international travel that was not properly quarantined. So that is an I can, tell you, I can tell you how low they were because I did I did some numbers and I looked back at last last July, our fourth or fourteen day figure in Cork on July twenty seventh, our fourth or twenty second, our fourteen day figure for Cork was fifteen cases and in June it was four. Four cases yeah. in fourteen days. Yes. So we are all paying a hefty price for the lack of international quarantine. And I just will not accept when the government say that uh, hotel quarantine is, is a disproportionate measure. When they That's what the Radker said yesterday. He stood up in the door and said it's a disproportionate measure to put people into hotels. I, I, I spat coffee. Did you? Yes, um, it's a, but he considers it a proportionate measure to quarantine five million of us in a five-kilometer radius to make up for the so-called essential travel that is happening now. It's not okay. We need to we need to take care of essential travel, uh, but essential travel means um, if you're if you're doing it for personal reasons or for your own business reasons. If it's that essential, you need to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks. If you're really an essential maintenance engineer or some kind of essential medical worker that needs to travel, you can escort them with security to make sure things are managed correctly. Uh, and we can learn from other countries that have done this well. So that is crucial. But PJ, mm-hmm. I think the point is we need a goal. We need a target that people can agree to with a proper yeah. reward. If you have that, then you can say, okay, now, lads, we can get there faster. We doesn't need to take until end of April. We can get there more quickly if we really buckle down, if we really yeah. reduce what essential workers are. If we Something really that, reduce yeah, you mentioned essential workers. Something that's been coming in here to our platforms every single day is the number of different things being labeled as essential and the number of businesses still open and calling themselves essential. You think that list is way too long? Uh, absolutely. I think it's obviously way too long, uh, including construction, I have to say. Um, I also think the radius is too long. Some people think the five kilometer to two kilometer change is a bit too draconian. I actually thought that in the first lockdown. In the first lockdown, I thought the two kilometer radius was silly. I was very wrong about that. The evidence is becoming clearer. Uh, a lot of spread does happen in different counties locally, particularly in more densely populated areas. So reducing our radius for this lockdown would also um, have an effect and, and we should not be opening schools in, in a hurry. And I, I get very frustrated when I hear this mantra from government that schools are safe, that schools are safe because they have a piece of paper that they received from NEFID in September that said schools were mm. safe. Well, well to be fair, during the week, I think Mike Ryan at the WHO put the lie on that one uh, when he said, yeah, schools are safer when you have low levels of community transmission. Exactly. We have nothing like exactly. that right now. Yeah, schools are as safe as the community that they're in. And I do think schools should be the first thing to open under most circumstances. Uh, I don't particularly like homeschooling my children like like anyone else. And I think schools are, are extremely important. But opening schools when cases are high is not uh, a good idea for teachers and students. And it's not a good idea for the community because it makes it very, very difficult for us to suppress cases. It just means longer lockdowns for everyone. So we need a sensible strategy when we're considering how to open things up. 
Can I ask you about the the border? Because it constantly seems to be an argument that comes up when you talk about doing the kind of things that that you and others in in your group talk about, particularly the quarantining. They say, but, but, but the border, but, but, but the border. What do you say about but, but, but the border? Well, I think it's it's a valid concern, but it's it's a very solvable concern. Um, I have to echo the comments of my colleague at the ISAG, Dr. Gabriel Scali, who said on this issue, we keep being told that a zero COVID strategy is impossible because of Northern Ireland, but we never hear why it's impossible. Uh, politicians are the people who make it possible or impossible. You know, we can't negotiate with the virus, but we can negotiate with politicians. And just to put things into perspective, in, in 32 years of the troubles in Northern Ireland, 3,500 people were killed. Uh, so far, in one year of this pandemic in Ireland, 2,800 people were killed. And that's just in the Republic of Ireland. So mm. if we don't have the motivation to do something about I mean, how did we manage the Good Friday Agreement? It's, we, there needs to be a way of persuading people to come to the table for an all-island strategy. And that's becoming easier because Germany um, and indeed Europe is moving towards an acceptance that we need travel quarantine even between European states. So it may be doable to have not even an all-Ireland strategy, but an all-Britain and Ireland and Ireland strategy. But failing that, failing that, PJ, the ISAG, my colleagues and I, we have a proposal that we're hoping to release next week on how to manage the border if we were to have a Republic of Ireland zero COVID strategy, even if Northern Ireland were not on board. And it's, it's much easier than a lot of people might imagine. And it's not perfect. But the reality is, is that there's not as much mobility as you know, we might imagine from all of Northern Ireland to all of the south of Ireland. And we already do local lockdowns. We've done local lockdowns on Kildare, Leash and Offaly before. We are all under lockdown now. We all have a five kilometer border around us right now. So there are ways of mitigating against transfer of the disease across the border deep into the country. Um, as Australia has experienced, you know, Australia wasn't all at zero uh, before. It's all at zero now. But Victoria was in a different position than Southern Australia and, uh, and New South Wales, and they managed it. They managed border communities. They didn't put hard borders in place. They, they had different ways of doing it. And much of that is applicable to the Republic of Ireland. And as I said, we can do it in a graded zone. So if Northern Ireland is not cooperating, why should that affect the people of Cork? Why should that affect the people of Kerry and Waterford? Why should that affect the people of Galway? So if we do it based on a zoned approach, in the Republic of Ireland, then the problem that is created by Northern Ireland is obviously going to be mainly a problem that we need to manage in the border counties and also in Dublin because of the Dublin-Belfast commuter traffic. But there are many practical ways uh, of managing that. And I think that with that approach, even if we didn't get to true level zero in Dublin and in the border counties, we could at least get to level one and that that would be practical and manageable. The problem is, obviously, Northern Ireland is a very difficult political issue, um, but we need our politicians just to be braver about this and just to find practical ways of dealing with it. That seems to be be, uh, a common belief. The news in the UK this morning, Tomás, is that anyone in England now who tests positive could 
be offered £500 by the government to encourage them to self-isolate because they're concerned about the numbers of people who are actually genuinely self-isolating. That's coming from uh, BBC and from Sky. So if they actually get a positive test, they'll get £500 to encourage them to isolate. Do we need to start thinking about the encouragement like that here? I think support is, is crucial. Um, so it's not test rates isolate support. It needs to be fine test rates isolate support. Uh, if you're asking people to stay at home, if you're asking people to have their lives disrupted, they need the means to do so. Um, for some people, that's far more difficult than others. And I think society actually uh, absolutely needs to be providing them with the means to do so. Um, if we don't um, ensure isolation, of the virus, then it will spread in the community. Testing and tracing and our public health measures, they, they work for isolation. We isolate the virus by isolating the people who, who carry it. We have to make it easy for those people to isolate. Okay. Lastly and briefly, and uh, time is short on this one, Tomás, there are a lot of people, a lot of countries currently looking again at cloth masks in the wake of the Brazil variant in particular. Should we look again at the kind of masks we are wearing? I think that the new variants are obviously very concerning. The British variant, which is now more transmissible in Ireland, does seem to be uh, even anecdotally more transmissible. It's not just a statistical thing on average. It does feel, uh, I'm not being very scientific here, it does feel like it's easier to catch that I'm hearing more and more people who are catching things in situations that previously would have seemed safer. Um, in terms of the masks we're wearing, I haven't looked in detail at the different materials okay. So, in this new context, so I'd rather not comment on that right now. Okay, appreciate that. Appreciate your time, as always, this morning. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Tomas Ryan uh, from Trinity College and a member of the same advisory group as Dr. Gabriel Scali, Professor Anthony Staines, and indeed Professor Jerry Killeen, uh, all of whom are saying the same thing about the border. We haven't even tried. Can we not even try? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Yeah, we had a few messages in from people who are obviously closer to Collins's barracks and what is and isn't available up there than either ourselves, Councillor Moran, or indeed Councillor O'Flynn. I can categorically write, says this message, which is unsigned, but that's okay, that there is no accommodation available in Collins's barracks. It's fully occupied. There are recruits, soldiers and sailors living there. Now, we don't know if that's the case, but it's one one claim. Uh, Teresa says Oliver Moran can't answer any of our questions and has no idea what he's talking about. Morris says the soldiers, the poorest paid of our public servants, are already working in nursing homes and doing loads of other jobs. On top of that, this idea of sending in a load of COVID-positive patients to Collins's barracks, it's a terrible idea. But we've had more than one message telling us there actually isn't vacant accommodation in Collins's barracks. But where it is that they want to put them in terms of, or put people that you know can't stay on the site, where would they be put is an answer I couldn't get out of uh, Councillor Moran. In fact, he wasn't giving a whole pile in terms of straight answers, according to a call. Councillor Moran isn't giving any straight answers of any benefit to anyone this morning. And another message says he's just mumbling, can't answer the question. But in all fairness, 
I'll be slated for this, but look at all the English reg cars and jeeps around Dublin Hill and Ballyvalan over Christmas. Don't travel, they were told, but yet they did. And the last lockdown at Easter, one particular family came over from England and back again. And Christmas, same thing. We all miss our families, but most of us stick to the rules. But there seem to be different rules for some. 1850-715-996. I'll come back to the comments on what Tomás Ryan was saying in a while. But I want to do this because I know it's been a fairly dark old first hour. And we know that we're going to be stuck with these restrictions for at least another month probably closer to six weeks if you're to believe the papers this morning and possibly longer than that uh, because Neffet are telling us now that we're nowhere near being ready to, to start reducing our restrictions in any in any way but yesterday I was talking briefly to Graham Clifford and we'll chat again uh, before it happens about his idea for a national day of thank you uh, where we reach out and we thank people that, you know, we mightn't think of thanking. Like we've been all year, and rightly so, we've been thanking doctors and medics and nurses and healthcare professionals and bus drivers and shop workers and teachers and firefighters and postal workers and all of that. Uh, but now we want to move on to the people that don't normally get a thank you. People who helped us without even knowing that they were helping. Um, and we got this lovely message from Eilish, uh, who said, Good morning, PJ. I hope this finds you safe and well. I'd be so grateful if you could spare me the time to read out my email. I wanted to take this opportunity to express my gratitude to a number of people, staff in Dunn Stores in Patrick Street, Boots in Patrick Street, Satellite Taxis and the Mercy Hospital in Cork. These wonderful people, strangers to me, but friends who rallied around last weekend in a time of need during this pandemic. My story starts with my dear Auntie Eileen. She's presently a patient in St. Patrick's Ward at the Mercy. A big shout out to Auntie Eileen if she's listening and to the wonderful caring staff there. She was rushed from Newmarket in North Cork to the Mercy on Thursday. In my attempts to try to get essential supplies to my auntie, I ordered online from Dunn's and from Boots on Saturday. Having thought about it some more and realising it would take a number of days for the stuff to arrive, I decided to ring the stores on Sunday to see could I get the essentials to Auntie Eileen any sooner. I wasn't sure how things would go, but I said to her, look, I'll try my best. I rang Dunn's and Patrick Street, and from the first point of contact, the lovely girl who answered the phone, Nicole, she went around the shop, picked out the items like nightwear and towels, and very selectively chose the next best option for me where something I actually wanted wasn't available. She pulled out all the stops, and the manager there, Imelda, helped. So well done, you're a credit to society. Then I went on to Boots in Patrick Street, where again, with the understanding, help and support from the staff, big shout out to Joanne, Kira, Owen and Stephen. The staff of the shops so obligingly organised the goods, took payment over the phone, labelled everything and said they'd placed them in the right location for someone to pick them up. At this point, I didn't know who the someone would be, but I knew I was not in a position to travel to Cork. I'm medically shielding and I care for my mam, who's in the extremely medical vulnerable group. So really my hands were rather tied as to what I could do without the help of all these wonderful people. My next thought was how could I get these supplies over to Eileen? 
Again, the cogs began to turn, and I thought of a taxi. So why would they, would they possibly do that for me? Then on to satellite taxis, where Kira took my call, took the details. The driver, Ahmed, gave me a buzz. He went to Dunn's and Boots and picked up the goods. Excellent service all round. I rang the Mercy Hospital in advance of the taxi going over. I was advised that when the driver would come into reception, he should turn right, put the goods into the trolley, go back out the door. Don't mind hanging around waiting. There was excellent professionalism shown from Anne, the Mercy Hospital receptionist, who followed all the protocols with efficiency. When I rang reception a few minutes later, she acknowledged the package had arrived and how it was on the way up to the ward for my auntie. But it didn't finish there. I spoke with the lovely John in the shop on Monday. He organised some nice ice-cold 7-Up also to be taken up to the ward for her. Seriously, folks, without you all, and but for your tremendous kindness and reaching out, and with all the combined efforts in helping me get my stuff together, it wouldn't have been possible for me to get those items to my aunt. It really has, and truly means so much. And a million thanks to you all. You're a credit Recognize your self-worth and your value to others in society and keep up your wonderful work. I hope you all continue to keep well and safe. Much love and do keep safe. And that comes in from Eilish. That is a very long email, unusually long for us to be reading out in full, but it gets across the sense very much so of what of, of what Graham is trying to achieve with the National Day of Thank You. So what I want you to do I want you to think of someone who's done something for you over the last few months, over the last few weeks, yesterday, at the very start, something who's done, some, someone who's done something that they didn't have to, uh, just to be nice, just to help, and, and you'd like to thank them. The easiest way to do it, send us a message, text to WhatsApp to 083-396-9696. If it's a bit longer, pop it in an email. Maybe even call us at 1857 Someone who surprised you. Someone who did you a turn when they didn't have to. When there was absolutely nothing in it for them. It wasn't their job because they weren't on the front line. It wasn't doing what they're paid to do. They just did something really, really nice for you. And they brightened your day in these dark times. So we're going to try that and see how it goes over the next couple of hours in advance of Graham Clifford's National Day of Thank You, which will be on the 28th of February. So get on it, folks. 1857 Now, I'm talking to Zoe Hendrick on the opinion line. She's Miss Cork 2020, struggling in lockdown and then voicing, voicing the kind of things that a lot of people are going through. Two pictures that you put up on Instagram, Zoe, and you say that you were seriously debating whether or not to post it, but you felt it was important. They were taken on the same day, just a few hours apart. Now, the first picture, obviously, we can't see it on radio, but the first picture is you at your absolute best, sparkling, striking, as we know you. The other picture is you looking, and forgive me, the best words I can think of are looking a little bit tired and emotional, and they were taken within hours of one another why did you first of all think long and hard about putting them up there but why did you want to put them up there in the first place the reason I took so long to like debate what I put them up or not was because I was like my feed was always quite positive it was always trying to spread joy and kind of like always be like oh like everything's fine like we'll get through this but then I was talking to my friends and like we were all having a bit of a cry on video call and stuff and 
started to cheer each other up and I took a screenshot of the video thinking like would I do it, would I not do it and I said I would in the end just to show people that it is quite normal to have your bad days like we aren't built to be living in silence seven days a week 24-7 and only left life kind of for a walk we're meant for social creatures and we're missing that now with lockdowns and this talks of lockdowns being to merge I'm hearing people say until Easter and that's quite frightening for people to hear especially people that maybe aren't liking their home life or out of work or anything like that it could be quite affecting and I just thought posting photos kind of shows doesn't matter how happy someone is across social media, they are also having their bad days and it's totally normal. And like you were saying that um, that nothing happened that day for me to cry. It was more me kind of just sitting there and thinking everything that has happened, like the passing of my granddad in the last few weeks, it was just all kind of grasped me at one time. Cause I I'm really sorry to hear me. that, Zoe. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, but, um, sorry and to I hear that. Some, even with my granddad, we were kind of told if we weren't in lockdown, he wasn't being basically isolated from his friends, that he could have had another few years in him. It was actually being trapped inside kind of got the better of him as well. And so doing stuff like that, you're kind of like, I really hope we see a positive outcome from all of this because like that, the deaths are quite high at the moment and with only 10 people being left at a funeral, that's quite hard as well on families. Yeah. And you, when you hear people like the doctors and the scientists saying, mm-hmm. look, we, we have to do this and we have to do that and we can get to where they've gotten in Australia, we can get to where they've gotten in New Zealand if we do certain things. Mm-hmm. Do you think they need to acknowledge a little bit more how hard it is? I think they do. Like I have one of my very, very good friends is a doctor in Dublin and he's treating COVID patients and the stories he's saying I was shocking and if it was just even if they could get out to the public just to say look your efforts are making a difference like this is occurring and we want this to stop as well because the stories he say, says it's just so upsetting but like he's saying there is a slight improvement the numbers are showing it but he does say that like people are still recovering yes get like your high but he's like he's just kind of like begging people to just do their powers like people think wearing a mask is not fun and like some people believe like there's no point but it's just for the time that they're asking us just to do it because we all kind of want to go back to the figures we had in summer and have a somewhat normal summer again be able to go see your friends be able to go see your parents like I know I have some friends that I haven't seen in almost a full year and I would see them on a regular basis and it's just it's not a fun situation to be in no, I mean, I would look at myself, who a lot older than you, and probably two friends I've seen in the last yeah. three months. Um, and, and that's hard. And that's, that's hard. And, you know, for young people like yourself, and I, I have a daughter not much older than you, and, mm-hmm. and she struggles not being able to see her friends. And, you know, Zoom isn't the same. No, it's not. It's not at all. Like, we need those social interactions. I know the minute we were left to go out to restaurants, we were booking tables and going there just to have that social interaction again because we knew deep down that there would be another lockdown after Christmas. We were like, yeah. people are going to want to see everyone they can see at Christmas. And, and were you thinking at all when you booked those tables, Zoe, um, that this was actually dangerous? We, 
like when say when I say we booked the tables, it was the same kind of four people I was seeing oh. for the year. So it wasn't like it was a mass group of us and there were twelve of us booking tables together. It wasn't like that. It was the oh. people that we were left to see. We like I because I'm a friend of the guard and I'm a friend of the doctor. I'm very very careful what I'm doing gotcha. because I can see the efforts they're putting in, and I wouldn't want to dis- disrespect them going out breaking. So you followed all the rules as they were laid down in front of you. Well, look. I think someone like yourself in the position that you hold, you speak to and for a lot of young people and and thank you for doing that. Can I just ask you a question before I leave you go? Mm -hmm. In the middle of a lockdown when all the salons are closed and all the hairdressers are closed and all the nail bars and all the bro and all the makeup, how do you look so fabulous? (laughs) How is that even allowed? (laughs) I know. I think I'm using my hair to hide like half my face and I have like the dog in the background to distract me from yeah because uh, you're you doing know. your own hair as best you can you are yeah so you have naturally curly hair so I kind of have like a bit of a cheap there that my hair kind of already has a bit of a style to it, I suppose yeah I don't know <laughs> a lot of pamper nights because it's not else to do. <laughs> hey, listen, it's it's great. It's great talking to you. You know, when all this is over, and over it will be. You know, we know yeah. that it will be over. I'd love yeah. you to come in and just have a chat with us afterwards when we can do that again. A hundred percent, I love it. All right. Talk to you soon, Zoe. Mind yourself. Thank you so much, PJ. Bye. Cheers. That's Zoe Hendrick, uh, current Miss Cork, strugg- struggling um, with lockdown, as are thousands of people. We know this. Um, but uh, she she voices it very clearly for an awful lot of uh, of young people in particular who are missing their friends. Ah, yeah, we're starting to get responses now to Eilish's lovely, lovely long email on on what it is you can, who it is you can thank, who who did something for you that didn't have to do it. It wasn't their job, it wasn't what they're put here to do. They weren't being paid for it. They got nothing out of it. They just did it because it was a nice thing to do uh, oi 3 if you've any idea or any anyone that you want to thank in, in that way One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why United Healthcare offers flexible budget friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, lots of them coming in. Someone you'd like to thank. We'll read some of them out. Some of them are really nice actually coming in. Someone who went out of their way for you that didn't have to, they got nothing out of it. Oh, wait, three. Three ninety six, ninety six, ninety six. The weather, you don't need me to tell you, but the weather is very cold and it's going to get colder over the weekend and we'll have frost and ice across the weekend. It's a really cold, damp spell coming our way. Now, the models, the various forecasting models were predicting this two weeks ago and telling us that it was a possibility. Not quite the extent of it, but that it was a possibility. Uh, Met Aaron have now issued a weather advisory across the whole country. But when we were talking about this a fortnight ago, a lot of people said, lads, really, come on, you're only telling us this is only nonsense, this is only folklore. And a lot of the, the, the sage nodding heads were, no, you can only predict the weather a few days out. Well, there is a very severe cold snap coming. And one of the people who predicted it to us a couple of weeks ago was Cahill Nolan at, at UCC uh, and also of Ireland's Weather Channel. Cahill, good morning. A very good morning, PJ. This is uh, the thing we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. What you couldn't predict was the extent of it, but we now know what's coming. What is it again? Remind us briefly. Of course. So what we were talking about the thing a couple of weeks ago, it was in relation to what's called a sudden stratospheric warming event. And to break it down again, basically, is when we see these warming events, they happen uh, deep in the, in the Earth's stratosphere. Basically, we see over the course of the next week and a half to two weeks, we see a reversal of the winds that we typically see at this time of the year across that part of the world. It goes from being a west to an east flow, which is the traditional flow, brings our weather in from the Atlantic, to a more east to a west flow. Now, in this particular case, the cold spell that we're receiving, we're getting winds directly from the north as opposed to getting them from the east. And that does bring with it subtle changes and makes a big difference, I suppose, in terms of the longevity of these cold spells. But really, it's as a direct result of that sudden stratospheric warming event that we're seeing these particularly cold conditions in place at the moment and throughout the course of the weekend. So what can we expect across Cork City and County over the next few days? Over the course of the next couple of days, I suppose in general, we will see a lot of dry conditions across both the city and the county. In terms of wintry precipitation, the highest risk that we have of seeing snow in the county is certainly going to be on Saturday night into the very early hours of Sunday morning. At that stage, there is the chance that there will be a covering of snow pretty widely across the county, I would have thought, at that particular stage. So don't be surprised if you wake up to a covering of snow on Sunday morning. Aside from that, there is the chance then of also some further wintry precipitations on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. But in between that, we will see some very pleasant spells of wintry sunshine. Of course, the wintry sunshine comes with very low temperatures. So if that snow falls on Saturday night into Sunday morning, it'll freeze very hard, which means the roads will be dangerous. That certainly is the case. So if you are driving over the course of the next couple of days and indeed over the weekend, please do take care. Those temperatures by night will dip down to as low as minus 3, minus 4 degrees Celsius in some parts of the country. It has been pretty wet recently, so of course 
any of the rural roads that aren't treated, they certainly will be very icy indeed. So do take care if you are travelling over the course of the weekend. Now, it looks like up the north of the country and across into the UK, particularly north of England and into Scotland, they're in for a right battering over the next couple of days. Certainly they have experienced very inclement weather over the course of the last couple of days and that's had to continue for them really as they go into the weekend also. So I think it was in parts of North Wales and parts of Northern England they, they saw certainly the worst of the conditions from Storm Christoph. We really only got, I suppose, heavy rain across the northern half of the country. But in the UK, they saw rainfall totals, I believe, in excess of 150 millimetres over the space of two days, which, of course, led to some significant flooding. And indeed, across parts of Scotland, parts of the Highlands in particular, they saw over 30 to 40 centimetres of snow and being driven on then as well by storm force northerly winds. So very, very inclement conditions they've experienced. And that's set to continue, I suppose, for them over the course of the weekend too. Okay, but nothing as severe or anything like it here. Looking looking ahead at your models, Cahill, finally, it was about two weeks ago, you said that uh, something was coming of this nature. It's nothing severe, thankfully. Looking ahead to the models, are they giving us any good news? I suppose mixed news. It depends upon what type of conditions you're looking for, really. As we go into next week, we'll probably keep the cold weather in place for certainly for Monday and probably for Tuesday as well. However, on Tuesday, we do see a change. We see weather fronts coming back in from the southwest, so we see a change of wind direction. It goes back to a southwesterly direction. That will bring a rise in temperatures as we go through the majority of next week. But with that, certainly more unsettled conditions in terms of some potentially strong winds at times next week and some heavy rain also interspersed by showery or sunnier periods. But that seems to be the case for, for, I suppose, the remainder of next week from Tuesday onwards. Beyond that, again, there is a chance that we see sort of a redevelopment of the colder conditions, but that won't be probably until the first week of February. OK, pretty much normal for the, for the time of year then. Cahal, thank you as always, Cahal Nolan. Um, from uh, UCC who's doing climate change is his thing there climate change and uh, he's also part of Ireland's weather channel he's our go-to local man to look at the weather a little bit in advance and two weeks ago he was telling us that this was likely to happen they couldn't tell us the extent of it but they knew there was something coming and in fairness um, Alan at Carlo Weather also was saying the same about 10 days ago that they knew it was coming he could see it but that it wasn't and he wasn't able to predict the extent of it. And, you know, constantly we hear from Met Aaron and from other people, you can only really predict the weather four or five days in advance. I, that's absolute nonsense. When you have the knowledge and the equipment that Cahill has at UCC or that Alan has up at Carlo Weather, when they tell us something is coming 10 days to a fortnight ahead, one thing we've learned is don't dismiss it. Um, we've talked about the numbers, and while they are on... A good trend in Cork. They are nowhere near where we want them to be yet and won't be for a while. Just to remind you, I was doing the last five-day figure. You know, I've been doing those now for the last couple of weeks. So the last five days, the five days up to today for Cork, we have had 826 cases. In the five days up to Monday of this week, it's Monday and Friday, we generally look at the numbers in uh, detail. In the five days up to last Monday, uh, we had 1,556, and in the five days up to Wednesday, we had 1,443, which means we're on a good trend. This time last week, the five-day number up to last Friday was 1,297. So Cork appears to be either on the turn or has just turned.
turned in terms of COVID numbers across the city and county. Our 14-day figure for today is 4,976. Now, we're hearing from within the parliamentary parties and within the political circles, it'll be confirmed next week by Cabinet, but that it's highly unlikely that there would be any change in the lockdown scenario for at least the month of February and possibly six weeks. That's one of the papers this morning reporting six weeks, which would take us almost up into St. Patrick's Day. That's for most, for all of us. For the pubs, um, it doesn't look now like there'll be a smell of a pub opening, a restaurant or otherwise pub, until May at the earliest. May at the earliest is what we're seeing in the newspapers this morning. Michael O'Donovan, of course, is the chairman of the VFI in Cork. Michael, good morning. Not exactly the music you want to hear, but this is where we are. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. No, it's not the the music that we wanted to hear, um, but I suppose, look, we've always said, uh, PJ, and I've been on your show many times, public health is the most important thing. Um, and look, we have to go with what the... I suppose what we're told and listen to what the medics are saying and the government are saying. So um, at present, all we know is that the meeting is next week and we'll probably look at February. But there, as you said, there is leaks coming out that hospitality will be prolonged um, and we will probably be, look, we were one of the first to close back in March of last year. Um, For many of us, we only got to open in September for two weeks um, and we're, we're looking at probably been closed uh, well over a year um, by the time we get to reopen. Looking back at what happened before Christmas, uh, where, you know, your organisation, as it's your job to do for your members, lobbied hard to get open for Christmas. Was that a mistake now, looking back? I suppose, look, at the time, PJ, if if we had 2020 vision, we we didn't know anything uh, the first week of December about this UK variant. It, it, It just wasn't something that we had ever heard of. Uh, the numbers that we had in late November into December, we were going in the right direction. I think, look, um, I think people ne- needed some light uh, from a six-week lockdown. Well, we did have Neffet telling us, Michael, that the numbers at the start of December were nowhere near where they needed to be. And they did warn very strongly that if we opened up hospitality, we would face an awful lot of trouble after Christmas. This was even before we heard of the British variant, so the warning was there. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I accept that, but I suppose we had come from a high, you know, well, a high number back then of over a thousand cases down to we were just over two hundred, I think, when we opened. So we had a look; we'd all worked together to get the numbers down, and I suppose, you know, retail opened, we opened in hospitality. Looking back now. I suppose if with, with perfect vision, was it a mistake? Probably, you know, it probably was. But I think there's lots of other contributing factors as well. Mm. Um, uh, but like, look, I suppose, uh, I suppose as they say, we, we, are, we, are, we are where we are now. So yes. I suppose probably better to leave it, leave it behind us. But I just wanted to ask you anyway, looking ahead, though, and assuming that it could be as early as May, you're saying that the government supports for your sector so far have been, and the word you're using in the echo anyway, woefully inadequate. Yeah, look, PJ, for the last, I suppose, two and a half, three weeks, um, members um, have been in a very difficult position. Um, I suppose financial institutions are looking for repayment plans. 
um, members uh, have used a lot of their own personal savings, um, you know, especially from May through to September to keep their businesses afloat. And look, mm. we very much welcome in October's budget the introduction of the CRSS, the Coleman Restriction Scheme. Um, but where we are now, uh, lots of members are running out of their own savings, their own money to put into their businesses. And look, uh, those especially that have to pay rents to landlords and to pay to financial institutions, uh, mortgages or loans, the CRSS just doesn't cover or give give people the, the opportunity to do that because even though we're closed, there's still huge weekly outgoings. You know, your insurance, the premises are insured. Uh, we have yearly contracts with your telephone, your broadband, which is needed because um, every premises through insurance has to have uh, monitored alarm systems, which are still running, which have to be paid for. We have our credit card machines during contracts. So there's a lot of outgoings. That's before lighting and heating. Cause so, so how could the government help with all of that? Well, I, I think the the first step is as we've had in, uh, engagement with them, you know, since December, we've been flagging this um, is really if they double, like at the moment, your 2019 uh, um, figures is what's being used, but you're only getting 10% of your turnover figure for for the period. So we've asked them really to, to double it because if they double that to 20%, that will give people a fighting chance uh, like we're hearing on the ground here in Cork and right across the country, members are saying they won't last until March. And like if this goes beyond March, a lot of them just won't have the financial um, capability uh, to keep their business afloat. So we, we need the help now, really, in the next couple of weeks to get people through to the end of this. Um, and even when we open up, we're asking for the government to, to extend the, the employment wage subsidy scheme to the mm. year's end because people will be... Look, I suppose businesses will be fighting to survive when we open, and at least if the wages was covered of staff, number one, it would give the business certainty to bring the staff back and you know be able to pay them, um, and I suppose take that burden off the business for a couple of months just to be able to get back on its feet. Mm. Would it be safer, perhaps? Not maybe not safer, but w- would it be wiser, perhaps, to stay closed until the last minute, put the protection in place? And then reopen when the public health advice is that it's okay to reopen, like rather than opening yeah, up quickly like, P- and closing P- again. I can say in discussions that we've had with, uh, with, with ministers and department officials, we have said our industry can't take another opening and another closing. So we've, we've said it to them. We would prefer to stay closed now, even if it's an extra month, an extra two months in order that when we open, we will not be in a position to be closed again. So, like, if it, if it does, look, if we're closed until May or into June, um, once the supports are put in place, uh, you know, we'll have to take that because we can't, uh, we can't take another opening and closing with the amount of money, the loss, uh, the staff, you know, the, the mental work that goes into it and to see it being closed down again, it's, uh, it's just so difficult. So we, look, we've said that, that we'd rather be, be uh, closed uh, a little bit longer with the supports in place, the proper supports in place that we can survive in order for us to be open prolonged going forward. Okay, leave it there, Michael. Thank you for that. That's Michael O'Donovan. He's the Cork City Chair of the VFI. They've had a hard year. Let's not look. We all talk about pubs being luxury things and restaurants being luxury places to go. They are. 
But they've had a hard old time and you have to feel sorry for them. But that's, it is what it is. 1850 Is your sleep absolute rubbish at the moment or your sleeping pattern rubbish? Uh, we might have some advice for you in just a sec. But there's lots of nice stuff coming in uh, on our day of thank you. I was outside Brown Thomas on Christmas Eve, says D, standing by the memory tree. This would be the rotary tree. I was very upset and a man came up to me to ask if I was okay. I'd love to just thank him. I've got a little hamper and I want to give it to him as a token of appreciation. A total and entire stranger came up like that to her when she was upset. Hazel was on to say her nephew, who was only 28, my God, was buried on Tuesday. Mad into Harry Potter. Uh, wanted to give a gift. Um, Brendan in Easton's in Mahon Point moved above and beyond. He was only called after nine and he had it at two o'clock. He met her in Mahon Point and he wouldn't even take money for it. Uh, a shop assistant in Boots in Blackpool on Christmas Eve. My partner, who rarely leaves the house, said he wanted to go to Boots, maybe to buy me a present, I guess, but he wasn't sure. Uh, I wasn't sure. He doesn't say much. I dropped him to the door. He wandered in without a mask, as he doesn't understand, really. He took off the one I gave him. I snuck in behind him, explained to the assistant that I thought he was trying to buy me a gift but he wouldn't be able to manage it he has dementia and could she help him he came out five minutes later clutching a bag and for the first time in years thanks to someone's kindness had a present under the tree for me that he managed to buy himself she gave him the gift of dignity with her kindness at such a busy time that's a lovely lovely story partner has dementia and couldn't shop for himself but wanted to so and lovely assistant in boots in blackpool helped out that's the kind of thing that we're asking to do on the national day of thank you more of those as we get them at 083 396 96 96 we are all i think a bit upscuttled in terms of our sleeping patterns for the last year because when you're working and uh, you're home at the weekends and you're working by day or you're going to college or school and you work and you get into a sleeping pattern but lockdown tends to mess it all up uh, jason brennan is the founder of think well he's a psychotherapist and also an author jason good morning to you good morning pj how are you good even the most satisfactory sleep is disrupted at the moment and i talk about as someone who sleeps quite well uh, for 90% of the time. Everybody's sleep pattern is, is, is torn apart by this. Definitely. That's uh, certainly what we're seeing in the research. Uh, I'm part of a uh, global working from home survey at the moment, and one of the areas we're looking at is sleep. And interestingly, 95% of us are uh, getting better sleep times because we're, we're not having commute so much, so actually we're getting a bit more time in bed. Yeah. However... Um, 48% of us are feeling less refreshed. So actually, we're, we're getting a little bit more sleep, but the quality of sleep is being disturbed in relation to what's going on in the world with COVID. And is it related to the anxiety of COVID and lockdown and all that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's related to the, um, the sense of uncertainty that, uh, that really kicked in back in March uh, and was there pretty much throughout the year and is still there now with, uh, with what's going on at the moment. I think we all kind of expect that the, the lockdown will go on for longer than we hoped. So that sense of uncertainty and, and not fully knowing 
what's happening is leading to us feeling a bit more anxious, a bit more stressed. And of course, that comes out in our body. Uh, and one of the first places you'll notice when you're a bit more stressed is your sleep. Your sleep won't be as good as when you're feeling very, very relaxed and secure. Something that I've noticed myself, and I've been pretty much locked up at home here now since Christmas Eve because of various things and uh, working from home uh, in full time for the last couple of weeks and trying to keep your routine going. And then what happens is Saturday morning when you don't have to get up. I would normally be a guy who loves to get up reasonably early on Saturday morning and get stuff done. And I'm lying there going, what am I getting up for? I'm not resting. I'm not sleeping. And that's not good. Yeah, it's, it's a real challenge because so many of us uh, throughout 2020 and now into 2021 uh, have had to adjust our routines by working from home. It's kind of messed us around a little bit, uh, plus plus the being locked in. We, we can't really go very far. So we're spending a huge amount of time in the house. And you know, some of us are going you know, a little bit stir crazy. You know, what, what, what are we going to do today? What, what's the big highlights for today? And often we haven't planned some things for ourselves. So even just getting out and going for a walk and getting some fresh air and putting in some goals will really help in the long run because then when you go to bed, when we talk about sleep, you can look back in your day and see that you did do some things that you're pleased about uh, mm. and you can look back and reflect on. Because sleep is very much a mental thing too, isn't it? You have to be mentally ready to sleep. Well, that's what the research shows. Uh, uh, we should really prepare ourselves for sleep every night and, and often we don't. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the things that's come out in, in our report is actually 36% of us say we find it very difficult to switch off. So mm. to turn off, uh, for example, to turn off technology uh, before we go asleep. So really, we should, we should wind down a good, uh, a good half hour, but at least 15 minutes before. Turn off mm. the TV, turn off the, the mobile phone and prepare ourselves mentally for a good night's sleep. And one of the ways you can do that is, again, just to, to slow down and relax do some maybe even kind of breathing, just get your breathing uh, into, a, into a place that is helping your body just relax. You can relax the muscles in your body gradually so that you're, you're telling yourself, I'm looking forward to a good night's sleep. So it is, it is amazing, the psychology of it. Maybe you can explain, Jason, and I know a lot of people will, will identify with this. What happens on the stairs? What I mean is you're sitting in the front room, you've turned off the telly because you were falling asleep, you're almost too knackered to drag yourself off the couch. You do that, you might lock down the house and go off, and then on the way up the stairs and into bed, ping, wide awake. Where did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> well, there was, there was probably a step missed there, uh, which was to have gone to bed earlier. <laughs> so really, you shouldn't be kind of on the couch feeling knackered and sluggish. That, that you should be up and getting prepared for bed. So that's a good example of where it's probably gone, to, probably sat in front of the TV too long. Um, when you started to feel a little bit tired, or if you're sticking to your routine, getting ready for bed, you should turn off uh, the, the TV so that by the time you get up to the bedroom, you start to feel a bit more sluggish as opposed to the other way around. Now, what's happening there, PJ, is uh, if somebody's... Uh, uh, sitting in front of the TV and feeling very, very tired, they're actually getting themselves more fatigued. And that's one of the things that we're seeing now, with, with, uh, especially with COVID, a thing called COVID fatigue, which means our, our, our body chemicals are, are a bit all over the place. So that when you're going, when you're going upstairs, um, where you should be preparing for a good night's sleep, all of a sudden a, a boost of adrenaline hits you 
which is is the kind of a wake up chemical. Mm. So you end up overthinking. So it is. So it, it, is it is a chemical thing. Mm. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yeah. That's so, that's so, the chat. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I. So you need to plan then. Uh, so you might decide, right, I'm going to bed at 11 o'clock because that's the time to go to bed. Is that kind of the kind of plan you mean? Yeah. Well, the best thing to do is look at, look at your bedtime routine. When did I, when did I sleep best? And, and even, even go back before COVID. When, when were the, what did I used to do that used to lead to a good night's sleep? So if it was going to bed at 11 o'clock, then keep that going instead of half 11 or 12. Because with the change in routine, routine things are slipping. So what's, what's happened is because people don't have to get up so early to go to work or to get to school, they sleep in, which means they go to bed later. Now, that's uh, contrary to the routine that they used to have before. Yes. Yeah. So bring, so in, bring in the time, and it's different strokes for different folks, so it could be 10 o'clock or 11. Whatever works best, try and get that uh, what's called sleep habit in place, just even to get yourself into the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to, of course, isn't it, to work properly when you haven't slept well. Oh, definitely, uh, and that's a good sign of, you know, did I get a good night's sleep last night? Is in the morning? Do I feel refreshed? Do I feel like I'm looking forward to the day and looking forward to the the type of things that I want to accomplish that day? If I'm not feeling like that, that means I'm not getting enough uh, good quality sleep, like deep uh, deep REM sleep, which we really need. Um, and I, I need to start to do something about it. Now, interesting, a couple of, a couple of techniques that can help uh, PJ is one of the reasons we're not sleeping so well now is because there's too much stress chemicals in our body, mm. and this is adrenaline and cortisone, uh, and we need to burn off some of them so the next day um, we're feeling very, very fresh, and a very simple way to do that is to sweat these chemicals out of your body. So a couple of things you can do is actually have a hot bath a couple of nights a week where you just really, really sweat. And what you'll find is that, that those chemicals will come out of your body that relax your muscles and your sleep should improve pretty much just automatically. Okay. Well, simple things to try. There. Listen, Jason, thank you yeah. very much. Uh, Jason Brennan, uh, the co-author of WIN, Proven Strategies for Success in Sport, Life and Mental Health and a psychotherapist and founder of ThinkWell and basically an expert on how to get a better night's sleep. If you're not sleeping well because of the lockdown, you're not on your own. An awful lot of us aren't. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Quartz 96 FM. Just giving you a reminder that Cork's 96FM brings you the Premier League Live exclusively online, powered by TalkSport every weekend, Saturday afternoon. Trevor Welch has pre-match analysis with some of the biggest names in the game, live commentary, exclusive interviews, and, of course, post-match breakdown and analysis. It's the Premier League Live online with Now TV. Stream all the action from Sky Sports on the Now TV Sky Sports Pass. And listen Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or at 96FM.ie. Premier League Live powered by TalkSport. Get the app, download the app today and go into it and you'll find it there under other channels, other stations, other streams and you'll see the Premier League Live logo and you'll find it there tomorrow afternoon with Trevor. 1850-715-996 is the number. The text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. If you have missed anything from the first two hours of the programme, don't forget we put the whole lot up as a podcast. Mid-afternoon most days, 
uh, you get the ads and the news taken out and of course the song's gone as well we just give you the talk show itself the whole show uh, goes up mid-afternoon so if you missed any part of our first couple of hours this morning uh, that will be available to you uh, first of all on Twitter where we tweet the link once we've uploaded the podcast and then the machine does its business and it's on the app and it's on all your other platforms uh, mid to late afternoon and we have a, lo- a lot of people who listen to the podcast all over the world, which is great to see. 1850 just coming towards the end of the show yesterday, this story broke, and I said it would feature heavily in the news for the rest of the day, and I had no doubt that we would be talking about it today. It is the sentencing to ten and a half years in prison of Daniel Kane, 53-year-old, from Blanchardstown in Dublin, who is the first man convicted in a court of coercive control. And he has been jailed for 12 and a half years with two years suspended, which means he'll probably serve around seven years. Uh, And when the uh, court was hearing about the various things he had done, he had been vicious and callous and cruel to his partner. Some of the news reports last night on the television news were were coming with warnings that what you were about to hear could be very distressing, and it was very, very distressing. This guy was a brute, a thug of the highest order, and he treated the poor woman appallingly over a, a certain period of time, and he was the first man jailed for... Uh, the crime of coercive control after conviction by a jury. We hear there are quite a number of other cases pending with regard to coercive control, but Women's Aid issued a statement in the wake of that case welcoming the sentence. And I'm joined now by their chief executive, Sarah Benson. And Sarah, I think you'll, it's, a, it's a solid sentence, a very solid sentence, and that must have been gratifying when you heard it. Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Good morning to your listeners. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, 12 and a half year sentence uh, sends out an incredibly important message, not just to those who uh, may be living, suffering right now with, uh, with violence, with coercive control, that, you know, there is help there, there is support there, they will be listened to, they will be believed and um, that, that the Gardaí are taking this crime seriously as are the DPP and that a jury has in this instance recognised um, the huge damage, pain um, and um, impact uh, on individuals who suffer coercive control and violence in this country. So uh, really important um, uh, message for those who suffer, but equally important for those who are perpetrating um, this very insidious um, incredibly degrading, incredibly controlling behaviour against mm. a current or former partner that uh, there will be accountability um, that's now being recognised through our courts, which is uh, yep. extremely important. This was made a crime. Coercive control became a crime. Is it 2018 or 2019? I can't remember which. It but was it is 2018. Now yeah. 2018. It is a crime. But what is coercive control, 
Sarah? It's a, a really good question. I, I say the, the Act was the Domestic Violence Act 2018, but it actually only took effect at the start of 2019. So um, it's taken some time to bed in. This is the second uh, conviction, the first uh, from a jury. But we do understand, as you mentioned there, that uh, upwards of 50 cases are currently proceeding through the court system, which is great to hear. Um, coercive control... Um, does not have to include physical violence and this case I would acknowledge also included charges of physical violence and um, it can but what it is is it is it's basically the backbone of what we call domestic violence domestic abuse it, domestic violence and abuse is not a once-off incident of of abuse um, uh, or of uh, name-calling or um, it, you know uh, other uh, violent and abusive behaviors it is a pattern um, it is uh, often slowly developed over time. Um, it is multiple small behaviours, some of which on their own may not be criminal offences, but when you take the cumulative effect, um, uh, now thankfully are a crime, of course, of control. So the kinds of things we're talking about are things that serve to isolate somebody, to diminish them, to curtail um what they feel are their choices and options, both about movement, but uh, decision-making, even down to what they wear, who they see, who they talk to. It can include control over every aspect of somebody's life from monitoring their telephone calls, who, uh, you know, what they're doing, where they're going, uh, but also down to access to, uh, you know, economic means, controlling the family finances, taking their, their wages, uh, controlling the, the bank accounts, even down to uh, what electricity is used in the house, what rooms are heated, when. Um, so what it does is it's sometimes called a liberty crime because what it does is it literally takes somebody's liberty away. And one of the consequences of it is um, that somebody's self-esteem is so worn down that they are so beset that they feel that they can't even think straight and it can make it extremely difficult to reach out and say what's going on to say that they need support and help um, and that is why a community response is really important to coercive control because it's sometimes incredibly difficult and may feel impossible for someone who's suffering that form of abuse to reach out and and actually seek assistance themselves proactively. I spoke to a woman at the time that the legislation was going through the Erechthus about her own circumstances. And she said, bizarrely, she said, the last thing he would ever do would physically hurt me. He never laid a hand on me, but I was terrified of him. That must be an awful way to live. Yeah, it is. I mean... um uh, through women's aid services and I know this would be echoed through all of the other uh, excellent specialist services across the country and indeed there's there's many in Cork County and, and city area who have this experience is that we would have women saying I wish he would hit me which seems an, a bizarre thing to say but they would say well then I can then I could people would believe me people would know what's going on I wouldn't feel like I was going crazy whereas actually the emotional abuse that psychological abuse uh, women would report to us that that has the longer impact that causes such deep-seated trauma and questioning of your own sense of self and also is an incredibly effective way of holding somebody in fear with threats um, 
that that may not extend to actual physical violence, but uh, it can be so implicit or, you know, to, to threaten consequences around, you know, their other relationships, things like that. But I think the core of it is, is that it, it, it robs somebody of their own sense of self and identity where they doubt everything. And that's a, that's a deliberate tactic. And it can include things like what's called gaslighting, which are very deliberate uh, efforts on the part of somebody who is abusive to... Uh, make somebody doubt that things that have been done to them are even happening and making them, uh, telling them that something didn't happen, minimising it, telling them that, you know, uh, that that wasn't the truth or um, even even mm. down to kind of moving to, things around and saying they weren't there. So it is an to extraordinary the point where they question their own sanity. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it yeah. just, it is so insidious and so important that it is a crime. What used to be the case or the belief rather with a lot of victims of this Sarah was that well sure I can't really go to the guards I've nothing to give them to go on there there is no evidence they, they, they might be very sympathetic but there's nothing they can do that has all changed now it has but what I would say is it's still a process that's underway this this crime of coercive control, recognising it as such. Um, it has long been the case that there is the potential to apply for protection through the courts, for example, like a safety order where there is uh, extensive psychological and emotional abuse in the absence of physical violence, but it can uh, prove a challenge to kind of paint that picture for a guard, for a judge. And so we would support through our services, you know, anyone who is suffering that abuse to encourage them to find safe ways to actually chart their experiences, to map a day in their lives, a week in their lives, where you actually start to then see it isn't just that they said something degrading to me uh, or they called me a name. It is also that, you know, they took the passwords from my phone and they won't let me use it without scrutinising my messages. It is also where I'm, you know, I have to be home at a certain time where the receipts are being checked. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it does sometimes require that, that effort to put together that uh, yeah. evidence to show the pattern, but it can be done. And I think it's so important that the Gardaí have echoed uh, what we have been saying for, for many, many years, is that it, it is, um, it is uh, genuinely uh, an abusive and criminal behaviour. And when we can paint that picture um, and, and give some evidence to show that this is what's going on, that it isn't just once-off incidents, that there's a, a persistent uh, pattern of behaviour that now we are seeing that recognised through the courts, not just in criminal cases, but hopefully increasingly uh, among our district court judges where we have some excellent responses where it's recognised. But there is, I, I, I think, still work to do to um, to ensure that those who are experiencing emotional, psychological, coercive, controlling behaviours uh, are recognised and vindicated at all levels of the courts in terms of ensuring their protection from harm. Coming back to the case at hand, which is the case of of Daniel Kane, who was exceptionally violent and vicious and callous and cruel and all of those things, he, he also had, and it was a kind of an indication of the mental control that he had over his misfortunate victim, he was always able to persuade her it wouldn't happen again. And for a long, long time, she always said okay and went back to him. Yeah, um, and this comes back to my point around 
the need for a wraparound community response to domestic violence and abuse. In this instance, you know, the, the, the perpetrator was exceptionally physically violent as, as well as all of the coercive controlling behaviours. But it was the coercive and controlling behaviours which were used to lock her into the relationship. And it was the intervention of medical professionals where... Um, uh, you know, persistent, very severe physical assaults uh, were happening, which kind of um, triggered uh, a guard intervention. What a very, very courageous woman, you know, disclosed, and just the disclosing of one story takes great courage, let alone in a criminal court, was just the hold that the psychological abuse, the course of control had on her. And that is, uh, you know, that is why, you know, sometimes somebody has so little energy and they are just coping. When you're besieged like that, where your every waking moment and sometimes your sleeping moments are <clears throat> completely intruded upon by somebody else, that is utterly exhausting. And sometimes mm. it can create a situation where, you know, the, the thoughts of trying to break that relationship um, are so frightening and so daunting and if somebody feels that maybe they have to do it alone or that there isn't support there it can sometimes feel easier in that in that moment where you're just coping with trauma to stay in the situation because to, to leave it could feel harder and I think this is where knowing that there are services out there, there's the National Free Phone Helpline and we can sign post to every other service in the country and, and including in, in County Cork um, the, that the Gardaí will live is that, that that message needs to go out again and again and again because it is so hard to feel you can overcome something when you have been so you know worn down and mm. that is not the fault of the person who is being abused that is a direct consequence of the actions of the abuser and so it is if anyone That's what out the there abuser is, wants effectively exactly so if anyone mm. here is listening and they maybe know somebody and they think I, I think this is going on here or if this is speaking to you and your experience know that it is not your fault it is the fault of the person who is who is hurting you who is controlling you um, there is help there um, you know there is recognition of your experience and you're not alone unfortunately this is the this is the, this is the pandemic that preceded our current pandemic you know this yeah. is something that affects one in four women in this country that's a shocking that's a shocking statistic I, I was going to finish up Sarah by asking you and always when I discuss something like this I, I'm conscious of, of an image that forms in my mind of a woman sitting in a kitchen with a mug of coffee crying listening to our conversation she's in the same position or through our conversation she's recognizing that she's in the same position and she is highly emotional and in a very delicate place right now or indeed a man in the same position but mm -hmm. what's the first thing that they can do I think the first thing, and you're right, this is something that disproportionately affects women, but also it can affect men and, you know, and also it, it can uh, occur in non-heteronormative relationships. And, and what I would say to anyone, anyone out there is, you know, know that you're not alone. Know that this experience is not unique to you. Know that it is not your fault. And also know that there is help and support there. And it can feel terrifying um, to even... Pick up, think of picking up a phone um, but if you reach out to ourselves uh, 1-800-341-900 you know there's no obligation there you don't need to give your name you don't need to even have a, a, any kind of plan of action or anything in place just sometimes just sharing what you're feeling 
what you're worried about, what your fears are, just that can be an amazing starting point. Um, our services and all of the other domestic violence services work at your pace um, and we're there to inform, but not, we're not there to tell you what to do. You know what's best for you um, and there's there's nothing wrong ever in reaching out and getting support. And if you don't want to reach out to a service, um, although though we are here and, and still here, .ie is a great resource. It has all the services, mm-hmm. including those for men. Um, reach out to somebody who you trust, a, a, a friend, a loved one, and, and say, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not having a great time at the moment. Can I talk to you about it? That can be mm-hmm. an incredible starting point. But Maybe that friend thing, or that relative who said to you three or mm-hmm. six months ago, are you sure everything's okay and you brushed yeah. it off? Go back to them mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and can I just finish on, on one point around that is that it is so hard for somebody who's experienced any form of abuse to be the person who has to reach out the hand and disclose it. The, the words can just get caught in your throat. You don't know where to start. So if you are concerned about somebody and you're thinking, gosh, I haven't heard from them in a while or, you know, under the lockdown, you know, we, we would have normally met to go for a walk or something. I haven't seen them. Is to be proactive, not to reach out and say anything dramatic like I'm worried about you, but just to say, you know, hiya, how are you doing? You know, a little WhatsApp message, maybe a phone call. Um, you know, I'm here if you want to chat, even during the lockdown, you know, um, anything at all. You know, be that hand that reaches out because we know from the experiences of those who suffer child abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, that um, that, that reaching out can be absolutely okay. crucial in terms of somebody actually saying what's going on. Okay, all right, Sarah, leave it there for today. I know we've, we'll speak about this again in the future. That's Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. The day after, 53-year-old Daniel Kane was jailed for 10 and a half years for coercive control and indeed for vicious domestic abuse of his partner. Uh, Women's Aid's national helpline, should you need it or should you know somebody who needs it, is 1-800-341-900. That's 1-800-341-900. Morning PJ, this sentence for coercive control is a positive result for all victims of domestic violence. It shows that when you're going through this and you speak up, the law is on your side and will take it seriously. I've spoken to you before, PJ, about my experiences of two abusive relationships that involved coercive behaviour. At the time, I felt it was a hard thing to prove, but I welcomed this sentence and I hope women and men will speak up. And more importantly, men and women that are doing this to their partners realise it is illegal to do this to anybody. And a man who's listening to the opinion line and listening to Sarah Benson says, I'm recently out of a relationship which was highly verbally emotional and mentally and psychologically abusive and all forms of control involved. It was the most traumatic thing I've ever experienced. It was a woman that was my abuser. I can safely say this morning I will never trust a woman again. It's insidious and it's wrong. On coercive control, simple question, can this ruling help men as well? Simple answer is absolutely yes it can. I lived with coercive control for 15 or 20 years. He never hit me, but he wouldn't dare. When I was going to the guards, they told me go home. I met this very nice guard one day and he was helpful, but the others ran me out of it. What that lady says, Sarah, is not true. It can be very hard to get help. No, I think she is accepting and acknowledging that it has been hard to get help, but now the law is there as well. It's a horrific situation, even with well-documented evidence. It's very hard to take a case. I've had two and a half years of well-documented evidence, but he still even tried to control the court. 1857 15 15 
the help is there, the law is there, but I think people do acknowledge how difficult it can be to start the process. And and very important, because it happens every time we talk about a case like this, very important not to forget that men are abused too and, and quite frequently. 1850 I see where Ronan Glynn, the deputy uh, chief medical officer, the assistant chief medical officer, has been giving it socks at the Erectus Committee, uh, the health committee this morning, uh, saying that we previously asked for mandatory quarantine and we recently asked for any elements of discretion to be removed. It's up to others to decide what's possible. In other words, what Neffet is saying, we told you you needed to do mandatory quarantine and we told you months ago, according to Gavin Riley from Virgin Media, they told them in May that they needed to think about mandatory quarantine and only now they're starting to think about it. And people like Leo Varadkar, a flipping qualified doctor for God's sake, saying it would be disproportionate. What planet are they on? 1850-715-996. For the last lockdown, or definitely the first lockdown, the springtime lockdown, the big thing was banana bread. I swear to God, if I saw another slice of banana bread, I would scream. But people did banana bread, they did sourdough, they did ginger cake, they did all sorts of things. Apparently the craze for this lockdown, which let's face it, we know can confidently predict will be with us until possibly up to Paddy's day. The craze... This time out is slow cooking. Huh? Rachel Hornibrook, good morning. Hi, PJ, how are you doing? Good. This is Rachel Hornibrook, the food writer and the author of the Little Muffin blog. What is slow cooking? Is it me taking an hour to peel the spuds or a bit more complicated than that? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's a bit more than that. Um, do you know, I suppose more so than ever at the moment, people just have a lot more time in their kitchen. Um, and it's, you know, there's kind of three main food trends I can see going into to 20, 2021. Um, and I suppose they're kind of trends that I've seen both personally on my own food blog and also, you know, known food trends. And definitely one of those is a slower, more relaxed pace of cooking. Um, and I suppose slow cooking can be anything <laughs> that you want it to be. It can be spending two hours on, you know, a really interesting recipe or it could just be a simple recipe that you know you leave on the stove for a few hours and that's simple and you go away and that's perfect it's done um but i think with this kind of slower pace to cooking it's you know a lot of people are cooking from scratch at the moment maybe necessarily cooks who wouldn't have had to do it as much if they were big fans of, of eating out previously before lockdowns and um, so i do think it is a trend that is going to be really important going into 2021 and it's also it's just putting that enjoyment back into mm. cooking um, I think a lot of people, you know, might have fallen out of love with cooking because they, they were just time poor. They didn't have the resources to be able to, you know, for a weekend, what will I make this weekend? Um, save down some recipes and, and give them a whack. Whereas people were just, you know, under time pressure, come home, do the dinner, and it became a stress rather than an, an enjoyment. Um, mm. And I think for me, that's one thing I have definitely seen on my page. Like I've seen so many people messaging me being saying, you know, thank you so much for putting the enjoyment for me back into cooking. I was not a confident baker. I was not a confident cook. But mm. some simple recipes and having the time to actually do it has been really enjoyable for me and a lovely outlet as well, um, given everything that's going on at the moment. Are we talking like stews, casseroles, pies? Like a good casserole 
even an idiot like me knows that the longer a good casserole spends slowly maturing away in the oven, the more delicious it'll be afterwards. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think even slow cooker recipes, like people are always on the hunt for them. They seem to be very popular, um, you know, and I think it's nice with slow paced cooking that you can literally just throw them into the slow cooker at the start of the day. A few hours later, that's your, your dinner ready. Um, and the longer, you know, it returns to like the cheaper cuts of meats, the like chuck beef and things like that, that it's very inexpensive, but slow cooking and it's produces a really delicious dish like my mum made the most amazing stew a few weeks ago and it just I hadn't had a stew in so long and you mm. just forget actually how good the classics are yeah, yeah. oh yeah you know? classics stews casseroles and pies 100% they're loved, they're loved. Yeah. now I mentioned that like banana bread was the craze in the first lockdown what 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 other than slow cooking what are people what are people doing for to learn say for the second for this lockdown yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I suppose, like personally myself, I've noticed a big shift towards kind of the healthier side of, of dishes um, midweek. So that would be a lot of like healthy snacks. Um, even I put up a recipe about two weeks ago for these kind of healthy Reese's peanut butter cup bars. Um, and people have gone mad for them. I honestly can't get over the response to it. And I think it draws back to that kind of element of... These are the things in the orange packet. Yes. Exactly, oh, but a healthier version. I love version. them anyway. So what, what can you do with those? Yeah, so literally it is just a base of peanut butter, oats, honey, um, and a bit of milk and some almonds. You blitz that up and top it with some chocolate, coconut oil, and peanut butter melted. And they are honestly divine. You should definitely give them a go. Um, but I they do think they, they are, they're so tasty. I might be biased, but they're, they're delicious. But I think people are definitely wanting that kind of routine you know snack i think obviously people aren't out and about at the moment so you kind of want something to keep that bit of you know routine going your 11 a.m snack whatever if you do have an office job but you're working from home i do definitely see a big surge towards a kind of a healthier side of eating during the week or even you know eating more like wholesome nutritious meals i think that really ties in even with people's moods during the week particularly obviously at the moment with lockdown being very tough mentally time you know for everyone um, mm. so definitely a return to health and wellness and also people are very you know aware of the fact that they want their immune system to be <laughs> in top notch order yeah. at the moment so yeah, a lot yeah. of healthcare recipes There's also a sense of achievement isn't there that you look at something be it as something as simple as a, as a brownie or, or a bit of ginger cake, or something, you know, a dinner that you put together from scratch. And there's a sense of, of, of uh, satisfaction there. So I did that. I made that. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, there's a big trend going into 2021 about the kind of micro occasion versus, you know, obviously over the last few years, we'd have lots of big gatherings and you'd be making birthday cakes be eaten by 20 people. Now, it's only ourselves in our houses. So I think it's kind of, you know, you're healthy during the week. And what I'm seeing a big trend for is coming into the weekend. What nice brunch are you going to try on the weekend? What nice baking recipe are you going to experiment with? I think Biscoff is going to be a huge um, ingredient what, trend. What, what, what What's Biscoff? <laughs> so Biscoff, it's, it's a lovely, healthy uh, spread made of crushed, you know, those lotus biscuits. Um, mm-hmm. Like the ones you get with your coffee. No, yeah, all those little ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so so they're basically um, whipped up with a whole lot of <laughs> other nice healthy things and made into a spread. Um, but then, like, I have a recipe actually for Biscoff stuffed cookies, which is 
they are delicious. But I do, I do think that they're going to be that's going to be a huge ingredient for for the next year. But I do think you know people love having that treat on the weekend to distinguish that it is the weekend because a lot of days they're kind of melding into one at the moment. Yes. And I do think once once you get to the weekend, it's important to celebrate it and you know make yourself something nice and and try yes. new, new new recipes as well. Yes, pizza dough. People doing their own pizza dough. Yes, that is a massive trend, and a lot of people have gotten those, you know, those uni uh, pizza ovens over the summer. I do think alfresco dining will be a massive thing as well. Obviously, going into twenty twenty one, because who knows what kind of restrictions what else do we have to summer. do? <laughs> I know <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and actually, you know, bread in general. I think a lot of people are, you know, reluctant to make as many shop trips at the moment, and it's kind of about using up what you have. Like I remember at the start, actually, of the last lockdown. A huge recipe that was so popular for me was this beer bread. Um, so it was essentially this bread literally made with about three or four ingredients, throw it into the oven, and that's your fresh bread, and you didn't have to go to the shop every day for it, you know? I see, I see. And very tasty too. Exactly. Tasty. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So we just need to chill out and do our own stuff. My, you see, my big thing, Rachel, I meant it. I talked to you about the, the whole thing about... I made that. See, there's a second bit that I add on myself. I made it, people ate it, and they're all still alive. <laughs> exactly. There's no better sense of achievement than that. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it there for today. Thanks very much. That's Rachel Hornibrook from the Little Muffin blog, Food Writer. The trends that we're having um, in this lockdown. So, biscoffee, which sounds great. Um, pizza dough, making your own uh, pizza dough. Uh, and stews and and casseroles and pies and getting ready to do a bit of alfresco dining i can my, my my big treat to myself this year as soon as i can get one uh, my treat to myself is going to be a new uh, charcoal barbecue because the poor misfortunate yoke i've been using for the last few years is only fit for the bin but uh, with the anticipation of spring and nice evenings, uh, hoping to get a little barbecue for myself. That's that's about the extent of the cooking that the cook does, because I don't want people to die around me. 1850-715-996. Kevin says, slow-cooked beef stew, chunky veg and soda bread. You can't bait it. You absolutely can't. Oh, there's a story uh, from Sport uh, in the last while. Uh, BBC Sport Wales have tweeted uh, he was only sacked by uh, the crowd in Cyprus a couple of weeks ago. Cardiff City now set to appoint Mick McCarthy as their new manager. Interesting news. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Lehan Motors, leading the way for Toyota hybrids. The place to order your 211 Toyota. See lehanmotors.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Uh, Michelle says slow cooking. My favourite is lamb shank. Turn the lamb on the pan. Chop the carrots, the shallots, the garlic. Put in a stock pot, potatoes and salt and pepper and a half a pint of red wine. Drink the other half pint, I suppose. Cook for four or five hours. Gorgeous with mashed potatoes. Michelle, I'll be over by about one o'clock. All right, I'm having lunch at your place. Or maybe, the, actually, leave it till the evening. I'll be over for dinner. Oh, I can't. Sorry, I can't. Level five. <laughs> 1850, 7159. It's coming up. 
the man who's walking to Germany. We kid you not. He's not walking to Germany. He's running to Germany. Billy Murphy, are you mad? Good morning. Hey, PJ. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. Billy from Croom. Now, obviously, with travel restrictions, you can't actually go to Germany, but you're going to run a 1,000 kilometres, which is about the distance you'd be travelling. That's Where, exactly. That would get me to why, the border. Why to start with? Why? Um, I suppose I'm building my own house at the moment, and I've been to Cambodia with the charity, and I've actually I've been to their very first fundraiser in Australia, and I've seen it firsthand, and I just thought, with lockdowns and people stopping and going, and a lot of free time and to get fit as well, so why not try and do something productive? Talk to me about that Cambodian charity. What's it about? So they're one family at a time, or all fast or short, and it was set up by one of my best friends in Australia, Beck, her mother, Jenny, and they go to Cambodia a few times every year. They they um, put kids to school. They do English-speaking kind of scholarship things. They build houses. They drill wells. They put toilets in communities that don't have them. And basically just looking after the worst affected families in Cambodia. But Cambodia, it's one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. There's 72% of the population live on less than $3 a day, which would be about €2. And the worst of the families then, which would be the ones that charity helps, they exist on less than half a cup of rice a day per person. So the poverty there is extreme. And yeah, the just doing their best. It's completely non-profit as well, so every time they yeah. fly out or do anything, it's self-funded, which is good yeah. to know that there's nobody making any money off of it. Now, you're, you're, you're not a runner, you say. You only ran about 80 kilometres last year in, in the whole of 2020. Yeah. So how are you going to manage a 1,000? I don't know. I've 50 of them done. No, actually, I've 45 done. I went out this morning and... I caught it short. I done five k because the ice was just ridiculous. But last year, any time I went running, I was probably after a big weekend, or I felt guilty about something, so I went for a run and clocked up eighty kilometres over the year. But yeah, this year I just have to dig deep and get it done. It works have out. Have you broken it? You want to do it by November? Have you broken down how often you'll have to go out and how much you'll have to do? Yeah, it's about twenty-four or five kilometres a week, so it's it's well over half a marathon a week and I'm going to try when I can build up the 10 kilometres in one go which I'm close to now I'll try and do three 10k's a week and right. that will get me ahead of where I need to be so if things open up and I can go on a holiday at least I know I can take that week off or yeah. if I'm injured or tired or maybe just need time off I'll try and stay ahead of the 25 a week anyway for the start right, right, right. I got you. I got you. And how much? Now you've set up a GoFundMe. What kind of a target have you got? The target, so it's three and a half thousand Australian dollars to provide a house, which is two thousand two hundred euros. And to be honest, I'm blown away with the support so far. I'd like to thank everybody. Um, it's up to over fifteen hundred. I was thinking if I got maybe five hundred, and I'd be sharing it every couple of hundred kilometers or something. Hmm. So. 2200 is the target, PJ. We're only probably six or 700 off of that now. And I mean, if, if it went over it, 
then there'll probably be enough to put a toilet in the village. Or like most Cambodians, they don't have access to safe drinking water or toilets. Now, this new house, it harvests the rainwater, which is great, so they'll have that. But the toilet would be more of a community thing because not every house has a toilet or plumbing or anything. They'd be way behind in that aspect. But if it did go over, then... I'd put that towards a toilet for the village as well. Well, well uh, given that on the 22nd of January you you have such an amount of money there, I think you, this, the sky's the limit with this lad if you can keep going and keep sharing it and keep publicising it, you know? Well, hopefully, like a lot of my friends and family you know and everybody have donated, so that's kind of the first surge, but I mean, the echo done a thing on it yesterday and now yourselves today, so... If it was to take off, well and good, like it's for a great cause. Um, and if not, I mean, even if I hit the target by November, that was the initial goal. So I'd yeah. I'd be happy with that. But I'll be I'll be running away in the background between here and November. Well, you know what you do. Keep in touch with us, right, uh, from time to time, because this is an interesting one, and we'll definitely follow it with you. And good luck, Billy. Jeez, that's brilliant. Appreciate that, PJ. And yeah, I'll, try, I'll fire you a message there when I'm a couple of hundred in. And do, see let us going. know. Let us know. We'll give it We'll give it now plug from time to time. Delighted to do it for you. Good good man. Go and back. a nice Thanks positive story to end the week. Thank you. Take care. That's Billy. 1850 715 Just one or two other things about acts of kindness or decency. I want to say thanks to my family and my siblings, but I emphasize how kind my neighbours in the Far and Galway area of Kinsale were to me in the last few months following the sudden illness and passing of my husband. That's from Anne in Kinsale. And Margaret says a big thank you to the lady who knocked on our front door Monday to say our keys with car keys were still in the lock. My husband had left them there. Very much appreciated. That kind of kindness. And we'll build up those uh, throughout the month as we head for for the uh, day of thank you with Graham Clifford on the 1st of February. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.